0: I'd like to start tonight with a short teaching from the Tongpulu Sayadaw who is one of the great meditation masters that Burma produced during the 20th century. He was a contemporary of Mahasi Sayadaw, if you've heard that name Mahasi Sayadaw is sort of the the Dharma grandfather or Dharma great grandfather, um, mainly responsible for this tradition uh, being transmitted to the West that we're here practicing. Uh, Mahasi Sayada trained uh, Muni- Munindraji, who trained Arkamala, who trained me, and so the lineage goes on. And Tangpulu Sayada was one of his, his cronies, one of his contemporaries that was uh, trained by the same teacher in Upper Burma. And he was an interesting guy. He was, uh, if you can call him a guy, he was widely considered to be an arahant, a fully enlightened being during his lifetime and still by many now after he's passed on. And he came from very humble origins, just out of a very poor farming family in rural Burma. But his uh, parents had aspirations, so they put him in the local monastery school as a little uh, novice monk at the age of seven, which is still commonly done. It's often the only way for poor children to get an education. And he did very well there. He showed a lot of promise. So when he was a little bit older, at 13, uh, he received a somewhat higher ordination, and was sent to a more prestigious larger school kind of like a high school college uh, in Mandalay, the, the largest uh, town in that area uh, where he continued to do very well, uh, became very learned, uh, very knowledgeable in the, in the suttas and the discourses and the monastic discipline and the Pali language, all of these traditional monastic topics that are part of uh, a monastic education. And so at the age of 20, he took full ordination. 20 is the, the youngest age that you can become a full, fully ordained monk in that tradition. And he became a teacher at the same time. And for the next 20 years, he taught thousands of students at this uh, Buddhist academy there in this large city. He uh, was one of the top teachers at this center until he reached the age of 40, at which point he decided to do something completely different, which is a very similar course to a Mahasi Sayadaw took. And they, they both ended up at this one center in uh, uh, upper Burma where there was a teacher named Leti Sayada, kind of the great, 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 great grandfather of this tradition, who was actually teaching people to meditate for enlightenment, which was something of a radical idea at the time. So Mahasi Sayada ended up there, uh, Tangpulu Sayada ended up there, and he uh, got his instructions, his meditation instructions, and then he headed for the forest practicing some serious renunciation, so just kind of living in these very secluded spots out in, in the, the depths of the woods, places where people didn't go. Uh, he'd always have to stay close enough to some little town or another that, uh, so he could, could get his alms and get his food for the day, once a day. But other than that, he would just retreat back into the brush, kind of living in the bushes and any little caves he could find, rock outcroppings, and practicing his meditation for enlightenment. And he seems to have had some success. Eventually, many years later, people were able to kind of lure him out of the forests to start teaching meditation. And he became an important teacher in Burma and visited here as well, uh, I think back around 1980. Um, So he he was uh, an interesting person. And just a few of his teachings have come through to us in English. There's a, a very lovely little small book called Blooming in the Desert which I'm not sure if it's here in the bookstore or not. If not, you can get it through Amazon. But it's just a very small, very accessible little volume with some great teachings. And this comes out of that book. It's called What Makes a Meditation. When you know that you are feeling greed, you are no longer in ignorance but possess knowledge. If you know that you are angry and feel hatred, you are no longer in ignorance, ignorance but possess knowledge. When you know that you're confused, that knowing becomes knowledge, and it is a meditation. Even if you become aware of the feeling, I don't want to meditate, that means you have the understanding that you don't want to meditate. Since you know that you do not want to meditate, that knowing becomes the meditation, the mindfulness and awareness that you know what you don't want to do. I love this teaching um, because it's just so simple and so clear about what we're trying to do here. Just to simply know what's happening, just that. That's really all we need to work on here. If we're filled with desire, just to know that. If we're filled with aversion, just to know that. If we're totally confused, just to know that. If we're totally bored, just to know that. This is the essence of mindfulness. Just to know as much as we can about what is actually going on in this moment. And really, we can be mindful of anything that's going on. We can be mindful of anything that's going on. Because mindfulness trumps everything. It's like the wild card. It can be anything we want it to. It can can know anything we want it to. So whatever that painful thing that's happening, we can know that. Whatever really blissful thing that's happening, we can know that. Whatever we think or feel about what's happening, if we like it or we don't like it, whatever story there might be about that, we can know all of that. And as soon as we know that, guess what? We're meditating, (laughs) even though it may not feel like it. So mindfulness is incredibly powerful. It has this ability to meet anything, to meet any experience. But at the same time, it's incredibly simple. Just knowing, just knowing what's happening. It's so simple that uh, at first, and often for a long time in our practice, we don't even notice it's happening when it's happening. It kind of flies under the radar, because, just because it is so simple, it's so uh, pedestrian in a way, so ordinary, so commonplace. There's a fantasy book uh, that I read when I was a young adult that I enjoyed quite a lot that is a parody of Wagner's Ring Cycle, if you know what that is. It's this kind of epic story about the Germanic gods and this magical ring. It's kind of like the Lord of the Rings story was taken from this, Right. So the the punchline of this book is that through a series of mishaps, this very kind of um, stereotypically geeky, nerdy, kind of puny, scrawny little guy uh, comes into possession of the magic ring, the ring of the Nibelung, and he becomes ruler of the universe. (laughs) And then everything that ensues with the various gods and goddesses and magical creatures trying to get this ring from him. But I always thought it had a a particularly clever title. The name of this book is Expecting Someone Taller. (laughs) because <laughs> everybody's expecting someone slightly taller to be the ruler of the universe. Um. <laughs> but this is often how we feel about mindfulness. You know, we're often expecting someone taller. <laughs> we're often expecting something a little bit more impressive, a little bit more dramatic. We're expecting, you know, kind of the, the lights to start flashing, the bells and whistles to go off, you know, a sign to appear that says, Mindfulness in progress. This is it. It's <laughs> happening now, you know. We expect a little bit more from this experience of mindfulness that has so much buzz around it, especially now in popular culture. But really, it's just so simple. It's just knowing what's happening. And as we go through our practice, we tend to gradually realize this, and usually through the process of elimination. So we practice some, um, you know, we do our best to, to be mindful, to put the instructions into Practice. And as we go along, we realize, oh, that particular way of approaching the practice, that's not actually mindfulness, that thing I was doing. <laughs> we try a little bit more, or go on a little bit more, and then at some point we realize, oh, that thing also, th- that way that I was trying it, that's not really mindfulness either. And we kind of go on and on and on like that, kind of ruling out various things that are more interesting, more dramatic, <laughs> more exciting. Uh, and we realize that that's not really the essence of the practice until we arrive. Uh, little by little, more and more at the understanding that it's just the simple ability to be in the moment, to know what's happening in it. So I want to talk a little bit now about what mindfulness isn't, some of the things that we can get confused about. So the first one of these is that mindfulness is not just being in the moment, although it's easy to get that impression Because we hear these kinds of messages you know we hear this kind of pop message of just be here now be in the moment don't get lost in the present or the future you know be here with what's happening just be with things as they are Um, and this is this one's a little tricky because all of those are aspects of mindfulness you know if we're not here now if we're not in the present moment then there's no opportunity to be mindful but there's more to it than that that's just part of the picture So if we think about young children, or even animals for that matter, many of us have have pets. If we think about how we are when we first come into this world, we're totally in the moment. You know, if you've ever spent time with an infant or a young child, um, they're just right there in the present moment. My youngest child, my son, just turned four. So I've recently been through this phase of his life with him, so it's very vivid, still in my mind a baby or a young toddler, you know, the first few years of life, they're totally in the moment, literally, because they haven't yet developed that capacity to conceptualize past and future, that, that hasn't come into their uh, intellectual uh, range of what they're capable of yet. So the present moment is all they have, it's all they know. And yet, it's also very clear, again, if you've been around young children <laughs> or pets, there's not a whole lot of mindfulness going on there. Right? So they're in the present moment, but there's not the understanding of what's happening. So if things are going well, if they're having a pleasant experience, then everything is hunky-dory. It's great. And children do have this, you know, this wonderful, radiant, uh, unrestrained joy and pleasure because they are so present and there with it. But there's the flip side of the coin, is that when things aren't going well, when there's something unpleasant happening, they're totally vulnerable. They don't have any way to cope with it. They don't have any uh, coping skills, any understanding of what's happening. They're completely at the mercy of what's happening in the present moment because there's no understanding. So all we can do at that stage in our lives, and this is where the patterns that we see so clearly here get established, all we can do is we can push out, we can lash away, try to push what we don't like away, we can try to get away from it, you know, in whatever way we can. Uh, or we can try to get something pleasant to replace it, or at least to distract us from it. So very early on, we developed these strategies for coping with life. My son is at this stage right now where he just doesn't want to talk about anything he doesn't like. He's kind of gotten past the initial, initial stage. He's starting to realize that he's not in control of everything. But the thought of that is just so painful to him. So, you know, he'll be playing in the living room. Um, He's a big builder, so he'll be with his blocks. He's got lots of different kinds of building uh, materials that we've given him. And he'll be really involved in some project. You know, he's got towers coming up and bridges and all sorts of stuff. And I'll come in and I'll say, Simon, it's time for dinner. (laughs) And his reaction to that is, don't say that. You know, he just can't even bear the thought that he's going to have to leave this enjoyable activity, activity that he's involved in. Or even if I come over to him and I say, well, what are you, what are you building? What are you doing here? He'll say, don't talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> it's like, mom, you're, you're interrupting me. I'm busy. <laughs> and unless something happens to really dramatically change the course of how we're living our lives, this is really how most of us go through life. The, the basic strategies don't really change unless something happens to, to change them. We tend to go through our lives in increasingly sophisticated ways, increasingly complex ways, increasingly powerful ways, basically doing the same thing, trying to push away, trying to get away from, or trying to get something to replace. This is what we call the wheel of samsara. And it is endless. Because it just goes on and on. There's no end to it. There's no way to come to rest when we're living our lives that way, constantly running after or running away from. The wheel goes on and on, and we never really arrive at a place of deep contentment, satisfaction with how things are. We never really arrive at a place place of peace where we can rest and get off of that wheel. So just being in the present moment in and of itself is not enough. There's another great book title. This one's from Sayada Utejaniya, a current teacher in Burma who's been taught here and been an influence on many of us. He has a book that he entitled Awareness Alone is Not Enough. (laughs) Awareness alone is not enough. We need more than just being in the present moment to gain knowledge and to really foster wisdom, the wisdom that will help us learn a different way to relate to life. We need to know what's happening in the present moment. And this is how The Buddha presented his instructions for this mindfulness practice over and over and over again. We see this formula in the Pali Canon in the ancient teachings. He says things like, breathing in, one knows one is breathing in. Breathing out, one knows one is breathing out. Taking a long breath, one knows one is taking a long breath. Taking a short breath, one knows one is taking a short breath. And it goes on and on and on like this. (laughs) You know, really driving home the point that it's not just to be there with the breath, but to know the breath or whatever it is we're paying attention to. Know the quality of what's happening in the present moment. So we, need, we do need to be in the present moment, and we do need to be with what's happening right now, but we also need to be registering it, really taking it in. As, as Steve often says here, grokking, <laughs> you know, getting what's happening, not just kind of going with the flow of it. And slowing down is really helpful in this. We're at the point now, a couple days in the retreat, where it really, can be helpful to just slow down a little bit in your activities, in those in-between times, getting up, going out of the hall, going to your walking place, around mealtime, whatever you have to do in your room, using the bathroom, all of these in-between times. It's really helpful to just slow down so that there's time, there's time to register what's happening. I also got some good advice years ago from a nun uh, on my first day at Pandita Rama, Upandita City Center in Yangon, where we had interviews every day, and I was relatively new to the practice, and I just didn't know what the teachers wanted from me in the interviews. I just didn't know what they were trying to get me to say, what I was supposed to be reporting. Because I was in the moment, but I wasn't registering what was happening in the moment. So I was doing the sitting, I was doing the walking, I was trying to move slowly in between. And for a lot lot of the time I was in the moment. I wasn't lost in present, I wasn't lost in the past, but I wasn't really taking in what was happening in the present moment. I wasn't really registering it. So this nun, uh, the advice that she gave me was to practice as if the next hour I was going to have to report on what happened (laughs) to the teacher. So every sitting that I went into, to really be in that sitting, as if I was going to have to give an account of it to the teacher right afterwards, or every time I went to walk, to really be in that walking, to take in that experience in such a way that I could describe it to somebody else. So if we're just in the moment, you know, we can be in the flow of the moment for a long time, but then afterwards have no idea what happened. <laughs> but when we're mindful, we're in the moment and we're also getting it. We're registering what's happening. It's sinking in, we're taking it in. Just, it's, it can be a subtle difference, but it's an important difference. If we're really mindful in the moment, present with the experience and and taking it in, then we can give give an account of what happened. Even if it's just to ourselves. You know, this is what the sitting was like. If we can kind of recount that to ourselves a little bit when we're done with the sitting or done with the walking or done with the meal or whatever, then we know that we're present with it in a mindful way. All of us here have been through the exercise of being drilled by our Burmese teachers who Um, You know, usually when you come in for an interview, they want you to talk about how the sitting went, how the walking went, and then general activities, which is everything else. But occasionally you come in for an interview and they'll say to you, what did you notice while you were brushing your teeth this morning? Or what did you notice while you were eating lunch? Or what did you notice while you were, you know, doing whatever, walking up the stairs? You know, just kind of random questions. And if you're left there sitting going, uh, 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 then that tells them a lot about (laughs) where you are in your practice. If you've been at least a little bit there, you know, if you've been at least a little mindful through those experiences as the day goes on, then you can say something about them. It's an interesting exercise to go through. So going back to that teaching from Tang Pulo Saida, as soon as we know something is happening, then we're meditating. As soon as we're in the moment and we know what's happening, then we're meditating. Another thing that mindfulness is not, is not, it's not trying as hard as we possibly can to really be mindful. (laughs) That's another thing that mindfulness is not. This is another misperception that we can fall into, especially in our culture here, Um, where there's this kind of Puritan work ethic that we need to work really hard if we want to get what we want. We've got to give it all we got, really go for the gusto. And some of us are more inclined in this direction than others. Some of us are more inclined towards what we call striving, which is really trying too hard over efforting. We feel like if we're not really working really hard, then there's no way we can be doing it right. It can't be that easy. And we can fall into thinking that this kind of very strenuous effort is somehow mindfulness practice, that we need to just keep the mind on every single breath, zap every single thought, push thinking completely out of the mind, just be completely on the feet when we're walking, no no exceptions, no wavering, no relief. (laughs) But this kind of really strenuous effort is is actually too much. It's not mindfulness, but it's striving, it's over-efforting. And invariably, we find that it's not effective and also that it's exhausting. If we're at a point in our practice where we feel like this is just so hard, I'm so worn out by this, this practice, it's just so hard to be mindful. You know, I can't even imagine being mindful all day long, continuously. The thought of that is just completely overwhelming. I'm being totally worn down by this practice. If you're on that kind of a vibe, then chances are that we're working too hard. We're just putting too much effort into it, unnecessary effort. In meditation, we want to be the tortoise, not the hare, if you remember that famous fable from childhood. So the hare has these very short bursts of intense speed, intense energy output, but then she can't sustain it. She gets distracted or she gets exhausted. She stops to do something else. Um, Upandita calls this being a, uh, a gecko yogi. In, um, in Asia, I don't know if you've seen them. They have, I guess they have them in some parts of the country here too, but they have these little lizards, these geckos, that they, they sit on the wall. So, as you're sitting in the meditation hall, you'll usually see a couple around up on the walls, and they'll just sit there and sit there and sit there until something comes within their range that's good to eat, and then they shoot out and grab it really fast. And then they sit there, and then they sit there, and then they sit there, and they sit there. So, this is uh, Sayadaw's model for how not to practice. Um, But some of us, we fall into that style of practice where we, you know, we make a really intense effort, we really give it all we've got, we really try to stay on that breath, keep the thoughts out, and for a little while we can, and then we get exhausted and it all falls apart. So in meditation, we want to be the tortoise, not the hare. We want that slow, steady effort. You know, the tortoise just kind of puts one foot in front of the other, slow but steady, but in the end, he gets there. And that's the most effective way to apply our energy in practice. The effort or the energy that we need to, n- to just know what's happening in the present moment is really hardly anything. So just sitting here listening to me right now, how much effort does it take to understand what I'm saying, to hear what I'm saying? Hopefully not a lot. <laughs> but if, we, if we're just present, we're open, we're receptive, we're taking it in, the mind just registers, this is what's happening, this is what she's saying, this is how the breath feels, this is how the body feels. It takes very little effort. The trick is to apply that effort over and over and over and over again. So just a tiniest little bit of effort, just right now. And then in the next moment, again, tiniest little bit of effort. And again, in the next moment. If we practice in that way, then it develops this incredible momentum to the mindfulness. There's not a lot of energetic output, but there's, there's a real momentum to all those moments, one after another, until it starts to feel even almost effortless. It can feel at a certain point that the practice is just doing itself. We hardly need to interfere at all to do anything. There's a lovely story around striving from the Pali Canon concerning the venerable Ananda. Who, as you may know, was the Buddha's cousin, and he was also his personal attendant, kind of his personal assistant for the last 25 years of the Buddha's life. And Ananda was known for being a really good guy, a really nice guy. Everybody liked Ananda. He was friendly, he was kind, he was generous, he was helpful, he was modest, unassuming. And it's said that he attained stream entry, which is the classically the first stage of enlightenment, the first little taste of liberation and enlightenment. Uh, It's said that he attained that quite quickly on his first three-month retreat after becoming a monk. But then he didn't progress from there uh, in the coming years for various reasons, um, possibly because he was too gregarious, part of being a nice guy. He really liked social interaction. He really liked kind of hanging around with the other monks and chatting and hanging out with lay people and chatting with them. And then he became the Buddha's attendant and then he was really busy, you know, taking care of the Buddha, dealing with all the people that came to see the Buddha, trying to help them out, and he just really didn't have much time at that point to attend to his own practice. But the Buddha still told him repeatedly that he was sure that Ananda would attain full enlightenment in this very lifetime. So the years passed and eventually the Buddha died at the age of 80. After 45 years of teaching. And then Ananda was still in a position where there was a lot he had to deal with. He orchestrated all of the funeral uh, proceedings around the Buddha's death, distributing relics, building stupas, all that kind of thing, consoling a lot of people who were distraught. Until at one point he heard that Maha Kasapa, the Venerable Maha Kasapa, who was the, the senior monk who kind of fell into the position of leading the Sangha after the Buddha's death. He heard that Maha Kasapa was convening a council of 500 arhats to repeat the Buddha's teachings as they'd heard them, and to codify a body of teachings to uh, continue to be able to pass along the Dharma to future generations, which is what, in the form we have now, has come down to us in the present day. So um, the Venerable Maha Kasapa had, uh, con- was going to convene this council, And Ananda had not been invited (laughs) because he wasn't an arahant, but he had been the Buddha's personal attendant. He'd been with him more than anybody else. He'd heard more of his talks than anybody else. He'd heard more of his conversations with people than anybody else. And he also had an excellent memory, possibly what we might call today a photographic memory. So he had more of a store of knowledge about the Buddha's teachings than anybody else really, but he wasn't an arahant But he still felt compelled to to share what he knew. He wanted to make sure that the things that he knew, the things he'd heard from the Buddha were included in the body of the teachings. So he left where he was and traveled to where the council was being held and arrived there the evening before the council was going to start, at which point there was a big debate. um, Should we include Ananda? Oh, he knows so much, but he's not an (laughs) Arhant. And in the end, it was decided that yes, they would include Ananda in the council, but Venerable Mahakasapa and some of the other elders in the community were really not happy about it. They they weren't happy with the situation, which was a big blow to Ananda. It made him feel really bad. So he thought to himself, okay, the Buddha assured me that I'm going to attain enlightenment in this life. So why not tonight? (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to go and practice all night as hard as I possibly can, as diligently as I possibly can, striving with everything I have so that I can attain enlightenment tonight t- tonight, and take my place with the Arahants tomorrow as an equal. And as it was already fairly late and he was already fairly tired, after his travels he decided to do walking meditation, knowing full well that walking meditation is just as good of a form for meditation as sitting or anything else, and that it's totally possible to get enlightened while walking, so he decided to do walking meditation. He was walking back and forth and back and forth and being so mindful you know putting all his energy into really being just in the present moment noticing what's happening until he was so exhausted that he just couldn't walk anymore he had no no energy left so he decided uh, very calmly very mindfully out of discernment let me go and lay down for just a little while to regain my energy and then I'll continue and it's said that just as he was in the act of laying down on his bench that he had to rest on, before his head hit the pillow but, and while his feet were still off of the ground, in that very moment he was freed from all suffering and became one of the arhats. And this is often how it goes uh, with those of us who feel like we need to work really hard <laughs> at this practice. It's a great example for us. So often we find that it's in those moments where we relax a little bit, those moments where we let up off the throttle a little bit. When things, the stars seem to align, things come into balance, like we can really connect and things open up. It's kind of like revving up a matchbook car, you know, one of those little toy cars that's got the gears and you pull it back and you pull it back and you pull it back and wind it up, wind up all the clockwork inside of it. But it's not until we let it go that it can actually take off. There's gotta be a little bit of release for that energy to actually do anything. I'm willing to bet that there have been at least as many yogis here that have experienced big openings in the dining hall as in here because that's where we relax or once we get outside of the hall. But what goes on in the hall here is very important. But for many of us, we're really working too hard on the cushion or working too hard in our walking place. It's those in-between times. And this is another reason why it's so important to stay mindful in all the in-between times and really not see anything as a break because those are so often the times where we relax a little bit, things come into balance, and there's really the potential for things to open up. Mindfulness is also not peace and calm. (laughs) which is another impression that it's easy to get because this is what we're all here for, right? This is why we came. I'm gonna go on a retreat, I'm gonna be mindful, it's gonna be nice and peaceful and calm, right? This is what we all want. So if we're doing it right, we should feel more peaceful also, right? But as we all know by now, even this is your, if this is your first retreat, <laughs> this is not how it goes. Peace and calm is peace and calm. It's a certain state of mind, it's very nice, it's good when we can get it, there's nothing wrong with peace and calm. It arises due to certain causes and conditions, one of which is mindfulness. So mindfulness is useful in cultivating peace and calm, that's one of the directions it can lead. But there are different mental states, they are different activities of mind. So for example, we all know that it's possible to be very peaceful and calm. <laughs> Uh, sitting here on our cushion, dozing off, or daydreaming, and not be mindful at all. And conversely, it's possible to be very mindful, very aware of what's happening, knowing just what's going on, and there not to be any sense of peace or calm at all. So the two uh, can be related, but they don't have to be. And usually at this point in the retreat, we start to see this very vividly. This is when those difficult states of mind that we call the hindrances tend to really come into relief, become very apparent. So these are things like energetic imbalances. Too much energy, too little energy, either in the body or the mind. We're sleepy, we're sluggish, we can't stay attentive, or we've got ants in the pants, we've got monkey mind. The mind won't settle down on anything. Or these could be our old habits of craving and aversion surfacing. So the mind looking for entertainment, seeking something to occupy itself, to distract itself from the present moment, or getting caught up in uh, thoughts of not liking, wanting to get rid of things. How can I get rid of this experience that I don't like? Or this could also be the hindrance of doubt, that ruminating mind, the mind that can't be sure that we're really on the right path here. (laughs) The mind that says to us, what am I doing here? Why am I here again? How do you do this? What should I be doing? Can I be doing this? Can I even do it? Will this even work? That doubting mind is something that can also come up at this point when things are really difficult. And all of these difficult states of mind are usually active, especially at this point in retreat, because we've we've arrived now, we've settled in after two days, we've become mindful enough that we can actually see them. (laughs) Usually these things are operating all the time in our ordinary lives outside retreat. Greed, hatred, delusion, sleepiness, restlessness, doubt. These things are always going on, always causing us trouble, but we don't usually notice them. So you all come into the groups and tell us how awful everything's going. (laughs) And we go, yes! Because it means you're seeing them. It means you're mindful of them. This makes us so happy when you come in and you tell us all about your awful experiences. (laughs) Which brings me to the large piece of machinery sitting outside the meditation hall here. Some of you may have noticed it. It's got big scoopers on both ends. It's very large, very metallic. Um, starting tomorrow and going through Friday, there are going to be loud mechanical devices in operation, working on the expansion of the dining hall here, uh, doing this wonderful work which is gonna make this place an even, even better place to come on retreat once, once it's finished. And if you are at all mindful, you'll be aware of this. (laughs) But you are probably not going to be filled with peace and calm as a result of it. So It's it's funny when um, Kamala and Mark and Vance and I all realized what was going to be going on here this week during this retreat, we immediately started to recount our war stories, our Dharma war stories of times that we've had to practice in extreme noise conditions. (laughs) And we've all had them, mostly in Burma, but occasionally other places too. So you can look at this as your opportunity to to acquire one of these colorful stories about extreme retreat experiences to share with your Dharma friends in coming years. For me, um, it was at the cement mixer at uh, Semingon, the country rural retreat center that Upandita has. I had been in silence there practicing for many months. And I was staying in the most secluded of the women's kutis, all the way on the edge of the property, away from everything, away from everybody, not near any hustle and bustle, and just practicing in seclusion, uh, because they were actually working, doing construction work on the the meditation hall. They were, like, sandblasting the exterior or something so they could redo it. So I wasn't practicing there. I was practicing in my kuti. (laughs) And the mind was very still, very silent, very peaceful. Uh, you know, I'd been at it for a long time. Uh, my practice was really on a roll. And then I came back from breakfast one morning and there was a cement mixer sitting in front of my kuti. Not, not like a big truck cement mixer, but one of these smaller portable ones, but still like bigger than me, <laughs> <you know? laughs> along with a bunch of construction materials, the things that you would put into the cement mixer. And, you know, I was very mindful. I was very calm. I, I came up to my kuti. I saw it sitting there and I thought, this is not good. and sure enough the next day a big crew of lay people you know from the local village came to work on building a new kuti right outside of right on the other side of my kuti that I was staying in and the cement mixer was just right outside my window literally like five feet from my window and after they'd done the initial digging and got the foundation dug out that cement mixer was running from dawn to dusk Day after day after day. And I went very politely into my next interview with my, with my teacher and reported on kind of all the, the ordinary things that I talked about and then uh, started to talk a little bit about about, oh, well, uh, they, there's a, they're building a new cootie next to mine and there's a cement mixer right, right outside my window. So I've been noting, noticing and noting a lot of noise, a lot of hearing. I'm noting hearing, hearing, these very loud noises, you know, hint, hint. <laughs> Because this was kind of a slow time at the at the center and there are a lot of other empty cooties in completely different parts of the property <laughs> and I knew that. So this went on for a while you know I sit in my cootie, the cement mixer is running, and my mind is... The, my peace and calm is completely disrupted. I'm getting angry and angrier, more and more irritated, more and more kind of self-righteous, like, why am I stuck in this cutie? Can't, can't they move me to another cutie? Don't they know that this is ruining my practice, you know? And then I'd go in and see my teacher again and report, yes, the cement mixer is still running. I'm noting, I'm noting a lot of hearing. There's a lot of hearing going on. <laughs> you know, try, Trying to be uh, polite and discreet, but I think it was pretty transparent where I was coming from. And and this just went on and on until finally I was like, okay, I give up. I surrender to the cement mixer. And I started to actually be mindful of hearing, which I said I was doing, but I hadn't really been doing. So I gave up and I decided to just really hear the cement mixer. Um, And at that point when I surrendered, it was totally transformative to my practice. I was able to actually hear the experience of hearing that cement mixer noise. I was able to actually see that there's two only really two variables to, to sound. There's volume, so sound can get louder and can get softer. And there's pitch, it can get higher or it can get lower. And that's really all that happens with sound. You know, That's all that happens with our voices, it's all that happens with machinery, it's all that happens with the birds. Every sound is really just this fluctuation of pitch and volume. And when I, when I was able to tune into it on that level and see that all my irritation, all my aggravation, all of my thoughts around the cement mixer, they were what they were. They were just emotions and thoughts. But the sound of the cement mixer was just sound. And it, it, I was able to hear it almost like a symphony. I was actually disappointed <laughs> when I wasn't there anymore, when it stopped. So I went into my next interview and I reported this to the teacher, that I can really hear it now. I can hear the sound for what it is. I can just be with the sound. And I told him what I had noticed, some of the details of what I would noticed. And went back to my kuti, practiced some more. And the next morning, a staff person appeared at my door, knocked on the door, to move me to another kuti. (laughs) So see, this as an opportunity. (laughs) Because we don't have other kutis to move you to. (laughs) And with this too, we can remember that teaching from Tangpu Sayadaw. Once we know that we're consumed by craving, we're meditating. Once we know that we're consumed by aversion, we're meditating. Once we know that we're confused, we're meditating. As soon as we know any of these difficult experiences that will invariably come our way on a retreat, then guess what? We're meditating. We're doing it. We're doing it right. As as soon as we know in the present moment what's happening, mindfulness trumps everything. It can be aware of the most beautiful, most sublime experiences. It can be aware of the most awful, most difficult experiences. It can be aware of the most boring experiences. It can be aware of everything. And we need to remind ourselves of this a lot during the difficult times. Do I know what's happening? Yes, okay, I'm good. (laughs) That's all I need to do. They keep saying that. That's all that I need to do. There was a really interesting study that um, a research group in Toronto did a while back where they put two groups of people into the functional MRI to monitor their brain activity. One group was what we might call advanced beginners. They had just finished an eight-week course in mindfulness meditation. And the other one was complete beginners, so they had no mindfulness meditation experience whatsoever. So they put both of these groups of people into the MRI and scanned their brains while they were told to meditate. And they were looking at two particular zones of the brain. So one, the more... um, the deeper part of the brain where the the direct non-intellectual experience happens that part the older part of our brain that just registers directly what is the experience of the moment and then they're also looking at the more surface superficial area of the brain which is where our higher thinking goes on all the the story making <laughs> goes on on the outside of the brain apparently and but when when after this experience when they they asked the people that had gone into the MRI, both the complete beginners and the advanced beginners, how was that experience, what happened? Everybody said, oh, my mind was all over the place. So the people that had no meditation experience before, the people that had a little bit, they all said, oh, my mind was just all over the place. It was just complete monkey mind. But then when they looked at the scans, they didn't match. The people that were complete beginners, they just looked normal. The the story-making part of the brain was firing up just as much as the direct experience part of the brain but when they looked at the um, the people that had just a little bit of meditation experience, it was dramatically different. That story making part of the brain was not as active. Even just after an eight-week meditation course. Can everybody hear okay? Yeah, okay. All right. We'll get you we'll get you advice. Or you could come a little closer. Yeah. So I found this study just so interesting that it just really shows that our subjective experience of how we're doing is not necessarily reliable, <laughs> not necessarily accurate. We can feel like the mind is just all over the place, and we do feel that way, especially in these early days of the retreat. But there can be a lot happening. There is a lot happening. You know, These were just people that were on like an eight-week weekly course. You guys are at this like all day, every day, for days now. So you can trust that there's some real transformation going on there. Something's really happening, even if it doesn't feel like it. Our teacher, Sayada Upandita, has said, every moment of mindfulness brings the yogi one moment closer to full enlightenment, whether they like it or not. (laughs) (laughs) So we don't have to believe that it works. We don't have to feel like it's working. It's working. (laughs) Another thing that mindfulness is not, mindfulness is not a state of deep concentration. This is one that I was confused about for a long time because I had trained in this particular style of meditation that does emphasize building strong concentration through really staying with the breath, through really staying with the stepping and the walking, through really sustaining close attention to bodily movements. So what I knew as mindfulness was always combined with a fair amount of concentration, relatively strong concentration. And I really thought for a long time that that quality of concentration of having a really close focus on just a small subset of experience, taking in lots of details, getting into lots of subtlety with the experience, I thought that that was mindfulness, that quality of mind was mindfulness. And as a result, I thought that the in-between times when the concentration was not as strong either because it wasn't, the attention was just more diffuse, or maybe at times when I wasn't feeling well and I couldn't muster that level of concentration. All of those in-between times when I couldn't get that feeling of being very concentrated, I thought that I wasn't being mindful. I thought that those times didn't count, which with hindsight now I can see was really very limiting to my practice. It very really limited the um, portion of my practice that I felt was useful, the portion of my practice that I really put my... Um, time and energy and interest into. I had this very narrow, constrained idea of what productive practice was, that it had to have this very particular feeling to it, this very particular quality to it. And for a long time, this kept me from fully integrating this practice into my life. It was very compartmentalized. It was just the time that I was on the cushion, or the time I was doing formal practice in one way or another. And I know there's others who have had this kind of training, too, in the past, um, might have had this kind of idea about practice. So we try to be really clear here about the difference between concentration and mindfulness and what the uses of each are in the way that we teach here. Concentration is that quality, that power of mind that can really focus, that can focus in just on some small subset of experience, really draw close to it, take in a lot of detail, like the breath, or like the stepping and the walking or whatever it is that we're directing it to. Concentration is very calming. It has a tranquilizing effect. It gives us this wonderful feeling of peace and calm. And it can be very supportive of mindfulness. It helps mindfulness to draw close and to take in more of the experience. But it's equally possible for mindfulness to function in just an ordinary state of mind without that extraordinary quality of of concentration. It's even possible for mindfulness to function in a completely unconcentrated state of mind. So there's times when we're just really sleepy or really sluggish and we feel like we just can't concentrate on anything, mindfulness can still be there. This really amazes me about mindfulness. Or when the mind is totally scattered, when we really have that monkey mind and we feel like it's just bouncing around all over the place, we can't settle on anything, can't take in much information about anything, we can still know that scatteredness. Again, this is just amazing when I actually got this, that I could be mindful when I was tired, I could be mindful when I was confused, I could be mindful when I scattered. This revolutionized practice for me because then it became truly portable, available in every moment, possible all of the time. So there are those times when stronger concentration is helpful and possible, nothing wrong with concentration, just like peace and calm, it's wonderful if you can get it, great when you can get it, helpful to the practice. But it doesn't have to be there in order to do this practice in a way that's going to be enlightening. Another thing that mindfulness is not is that it is not a state of profound insight. At least not all the time. (laughs) It's actually not a state of profound insight most of the time. Actually, it's not a state of profound insight the vast majority of the time. (laughs) So We can fall into thinking, well, if I were really being mindful, then I would be seeing something else than what I'm seeing. I would be seeing something deeper, I would be seeing something subtler, I would be seeing something more profound, I would be seeing something different than just another moment of my knee pain, or just another moment of sleepiness, or just another moment of obsessive thinking. This is part of our expecting someone taller. And so we can fall into thinking that if we're not having a particularly profound experience in the meditation, if we're just slogging through all of this very ordinary stuff in the mind and the body, that we need to try harder or we need to get more concentrated or we somehow need to work with work with <laughs> whatever it is that's keeping us from really being mindful. Get it out of the way. But most of the time, and this is just a fact of practice, this is kind of the hard facts of practice, most of the time, what mindfulness is knowing, what we're knowing in the moment is strikingly unremarkable, Mm -hmm. dramatically unexciting, incredibly pedestrian. It's just all that ordinary stuff that makes up the vast majority of our lives, whether we're here or whether we're at home. It's mostly just the same kinds of stuff, sensations going on in the body, thoughts and emotions passing through the mind, about very ordinary things. This is what our lives are composed of. And the willingness to be mindful of all of that, of all that ordinary, unexciting stuff, is an incredibly important part of the practice. That willingness to just keep showing up, to just keep showing up for another unexciting moment, (laughs) another unexciting breath, another unexciting step. Another really unexciting moment of pain, or of confusion, or sleepiness. The willingness to show up for all of that strengthens the mind and strengthens the heart in a very powerful way. Boredom is actually really good. Because it means that we're being mindful. It means that we're actually showing up for all of those ordinary moments, taking them in. We're noticing them. Usually we don't even notice them. Usually they don't make the cut. Those ordinary moments, those boring moments, right? Like, if we're out in our ordinary lives and things get too uneventful or too uninteresting, what do we do? We take out the phone, <laughs> or we turn on the TV, or we go to the fridge. We've got our lives structured so that we don't have to experience the ordinariness of so many moments of our lives. So, boredom is good, it means that we're reacclimating ourselves to reality. Because this is reality, this is actual reality, not what's on the phone or on the TV or in the fridge. And there will be peak moments, you know, there will be those moments of just incredible bliss or really awful moments and kind of peak moments in the other direction. Uh, There will be moments when things really open up and we really see things in a different way and there's some real insight that arises. But one of the things that we learn or that we relearn from our childhood, from those early days here on retreat is that every moment is precious. Every moment is precious. That moment of pain is precious. That moment of sleepiness is precious. That moment of boredom is precious. Each of those moments is a moment of our life that we will never live again. It's all worthwhile, it's all worth living. And if we can approach our practice with that attitude of, of really of reverence for every moment of our lives, no matter what it might contain, Just the fact that we're here, that we're alive, that we're feeling it, that we're knowing it. If we can approach practice with a reverence for all of that, then walking on this path becomes an experience of great joy and great satisfaction and great beauty. The Buddha said that this path is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. So just being on the path can be a wonderful experience because that's where we're gonna be for a long time. I'll close with a a poem. In the time of the Buddha, there was a woman named Patachara, And she had suffered through a very traumatic adult life. She had lost her husband, and then her two young children, and also her parents and her brother, all of her family in a relatively short span of time and through just awful tragedies. Her story is really just heartbreaking. And she was wandering around northern India, um, in the area where the Buddha was teaching, basically out of her mind with grief, unable to take care of herself. People would throw her scraps of food to kind of sustain her, out of pity, until she encountered the Buddha. And something about his presence really touched her and she kind of came to herself and she joined the order of nuns and became a very diligent practitioner. And went on to become one of the the great teachers within the the nuns community and a mentor to many other women. Um, We have to imagine that all of the suffering that she had gone through had given her a tremendous source of compassion for other people's suffering and made her a great inspiration to those around her. And this is a poem that's attributed to her, describing her enlightenment experience, what happened in that period of time when she was enlightened, those few moments. And I love it because it just so much conveys the ordinariness of what she's doing, of what her experience is on retreat. Um, It's very timeless. You know, we can all relate to this. This was written at least a thousand years ago, possibly more. Um, But the sense of it, the feeling of it, it could have been written in the last century, it could have been written last month, could have been written by one of you here tonight. (laughs) Bathing my feet, I watched the bathwater spill down the slope I concentrated my mind, the way you train a good horse. Then I took a lamp and went to my room, checked the bed, and sat down on it. I took a needle and pushed the wick down. Just as the lamp went out, my mind was freed. Let's sit for a minute.